Let's pray. Our Father, a holy God, we hear your command now to be holy as you are holy. You are whole, your judgments are perfect, and your love is overflowing. You do not tolerate sin. But when we take a clear-eyed look at our lives, we see our propensity to sin. Whether new or experienced believers, we see that we have partiality in our judgments. We show with our actions that we want to be the judge of what is right and what is wrong against your revealed will. We are selfish, looking out for what we want and not considering the needs of those around us. So Lord, we confess all of this and more and ask for your forgiveness. Grant us repentance and help us to take hold of it and act on it while we are able. Lord, we pray this same thing for the people of the other churches in our area. Specifically, we pray for the Well Church in Portland and for Salem Heights here in Salem. Let the preaching of your word this morning bear fruit in the lives of those congregations. Open their ears to your calling to them to be set apart from the world, to be holy in all of their conduct, and in imitating you in your holiness, we pray that the people around them would see you truly and that more people would be called to be part of your church. Help the pastors of those churches to serve those congregations well. Help them to model what it means to be a mature Christian, that they would all be built up into the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those churches and for our church as well, we pray that we would be unified in all things. Let us be unified in our commitment to the gospel. Sink this truth deep in our hearts. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to ransom us from our slavery to sin. And by dying to sin in our lives, we get to share in his resurrection. Unite us in our commitment to your word. Your word is sure and can be trusted to guide us on your path even while the world around us is tossed from one new ideology to the next. Father, we pray specifically for those in our congregation who are ill and suffering. We pray for a quick and complete recovery. We pray that in their illness, they would be able to look forward to the day that you bring your full reign to earth and all things are made right. We pray that in their suffering, they would be reminded of Christ's suffering and how he is a king who has compassion because he knows their suffering. Help us to know how to serve them and use the illness and suffering to remind us to pray for one another, for physical healing and also for spiritual growth in one another. We pray for our brother Nick now. Let your words uh, to us flow through him this morning. Open our ears and soften our hearts so we can be changed more and more into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Feel free to have a seat. What a wonderful thing that we serve a God that we can go to in prayer and pour our hearts out towards him and to him, and he hears us. What a good thing. Earlier this summer, before we had moved down here to Salem, my family and I were sitting in our home with a neighbor, and we heard a loud noise, a very loud noise. Uh, we heard what sounded like a thousand wings beating against the air. Uh, we began looking around. I kind of curiously wondered, okay, is this it? Is this like the apocalypse? Am I gonna, what am I going to see when I look outside? And what we saw 
were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of honeybees. They were swarming. And uh, it was incredible to say the least. The sound of their wings was loud enough to be heard all the way through our walls, the walls of our home. Bees like this swarm when the hive becomes too populated. And then another queen hatches and they send out this group, these thousands of of bees, other bees, to find a new home. Swarming, though, is exhausting for bees. After doing some research, I was enthralled by this sight. Swarming is exhausting for bees. They beat their wings uh, in such a manner that it creates its own temperature for the queen to be safe. They can control the humidity that the queen is experiencing. And at the very center of this swarm is that queen, and she is comfy and cozy. So what we did as a family was we called the local beekeeper who came and uh, in exchange for our information gave us some honey, which was wonderful, and they took this swarm and, and were going to take care of it. And so it was all, through dialoguing with them that they gave us all of this information, this wonderful knowledge about how these bees swarm and what they are actually doing. The sound of their wings, the sound of this swarm, notified my family that something was taking place. And it was actually that sound that, that was telling us and communicating that what they were doing was protecting the very heart of their existence. All of their future, all of their life was wrapped up in keeping the queen safe. Even after having found a new hive, a hive of bees, after it's built, they continue to do this. This is, this is what they do. They protect the queen. Their ability to organize, their ability to care for one another, their ability to even vote as a colony, all points to a greater reality. And it told me, as the observer, there's something greater going on here. There's something more to this reality. It proclaims a power greater than themselves. Now, it told me that there was a creator, right? But what we're going to see here in 1 Timothy 3 this morning is very similar to that. So if you have your Bible, please turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16. If you leave here this morning, if you leave here this morning with one thing, leave here with this. This is the big idea. The order of the church proclaims the gospel. The order of the church proclaims the gospel. Let's look now uh, at these verses as I, and listen as I read them. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory." Amen. Yeah, we come to, so here we come to the end of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. 
Paul has been writing to 1 Timothy, this young pastor, his instructions on how to be a pastor, how to shepherd, and what to be about, what to devote his time to. And his instructions in chapter 3, as we've seen the last couple weeks, have consisted of, those, of putting those in place in, church, in the church in, in lead positions that have both qualified, that are both qualified, both qualifications of these leaders are based on who God has created them to be, the elders and the deacons of the church, who God has created them to be. First, God created men to lead the church, right? We see that when we talk about elders, those who fill the elder pastor position of the church. Second, God has created people in both elders and deacons with character that reflects him. God has put people in place in church with character that reflects his own. And it should be they who are elders and deacons. And it is this order of the church that God has given his stamp of approval on. So we ought to pay attention to it. In our verses this morning, Paul sums up all that we have read so far, but presses us further, presses us as the reader deeper. And I've, for the sake of, uh, of comprehending, I've divided up the text into two portions. Point one and point two. First, right understanding. A right understanding. And second is right foundation. So let's look now at verses 14 through 15. Uh, let, me, let me read those once again as we look at what Paul is communicating here about our right understanding. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what Paul is telling Timothy here is, look, Timothy, my son, I wish that I could be there with you. I, I long to be there with you. But if I'm, I'm going to be delayed. I po- quite possibly am going to um, not be able to be there as soon as I would like. So the purpose of this letter is to let you know that as you go about your work as a pastor, there is a right way to act in the household of God. As a pastor, you have a standard, a a marching orders, how you ought to behave. So what is this right behavior, right? As the reader of the text, I'm like, okay, what is this behavior? He doesn't really outline anything here. But we have to look before. That right behavior that he's talking about is what we have seen previously. God expects the leaders of his people to model what godly character looks like. And this behavior, Paul is clear, relates to the church, relates to the house of God. Growing up, I grew up, my, the first 13 years of my life were spent in a Nazarene church. So we, I grew up Nazarene, and in this church, we had some dear older saints who communicated in no uncertain terms that you don't wear a hat and you don't run where God's word and preaching takes place, right? In the sanctuary. You just don't do it. Now, this wasn't just a Sunday morning rule, because in my young mind, I remember, this was a 24-7 rule. 
anytime they were around and they saw anyone in the youth group, right, it was mostly the young kids, the young, the young people, wearing a hat or running in the sanctuary, they were reprimanded. Get that off of your head. This is where God lives, right? This is God's house. Now, this is a common thought that, that I think many people in America have, at least in the past generation. God lives in his church, and right where I'm standing, this is, this is where God lives. This place must be holier, right? So we need, to, we need to treat it as holy. And I really appreciate their heart. I do. I appreciate their motives. But I think that they miss the point. When we read here in 1 Timothy that there is a behavior that is appropriate for the house of God, he isn't meaning a building. He is not meaning a building. God doesn't live in a structure. Instead, he lives inside of his people. Look at Hebrews 3.6 on the screen. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Who's his house? We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house if we hold fast to that reality. So while God's spirit does live, does, does not, uh, God does not live in his house, he lives in his people, he, he lives in us bringing life where once there was death. And this points to a much greater reality. A, re- a greater reality. And what we see clearly in 1 Timothy is that though we are uh, not a worship in a building, God does live in his people. You and I are the building that God lives in. And this happens to be the church. Timothy is about is to be about the values that a young pastor should, be, should have for a church. That, was, that is what Paul is instructing Timothy in. And so while it is true that, that God does live in us, but when, we also need to grasp another deeper, more, uh, more deeper reality, is that when we assemble as Christians, as the church, as we have this morning, he is present, yes, individually, but also in a much greater, more deeper way. The church is the assembly of God. It is not an informal Bible study. It is not a group of believers having coffee. Yeah, maybe they might all go to a church. But what Paul is telling Timothy and communicating to us is that the church is what is gathered on Sunday. Look at 1 Peter 2.5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So your faith, Christian, your faith, your, your life, your individual walk with God is, the, is a picture of, and is meant to be something greater. You are meant to be built into the house of God. You are one of the stones. Your faith is not a solo faith. The faith that you have, your, your, your calling as a Christian is so much greater than you or I. 
Yeah, we were saved from our sin. Yes, God lives in us, but we were called out of our sin and called to be a part of something more. We were called to be a stone in God's church, a key piece of the building that he is constructing in this world. We lose this in our individualistic Western mentality. We lose it greatly. We often believe that being a Christian is just about me and Jesus. It's just about me going to church on a Sunday, getting recharged, feeling, feeling good to go through the rest of the week, and going my own happy way. Now, personally, I am grateful that the church does recharge me. It's wonderful being here. I look forward to it every Sunday, or all week long, I look forward to it. And hearing from God's word does bring life. But we ought not stop there. We lose the richness of God's plan when we, we, we minimize it and, and reduce it to just that. God's plan from before creation was to build us into something greater. We are being built into the house of God, his dwelling place, a living, breathing God who dwells among his people. We see this in 1 Timothy. Paul, in verse 15, continues to explain more about this house of God. How does he explain it? He says it's the church. Now, we've heard this before. I've seen it up on the screen. The church in the New Testament is from the Greek, ekklesia. It literally means the called out assembled group. The gathering of God's people is where God lives. He lives here as we gather together. That should, that gives me chills. He is present among us. So why does, why does behavior matter to Timothy? Why does Paul say, Timothy, your behavior matters? Because he was the man who would lead the people of God to worship and to hear from God. Paul is clear. God is alive. He is not dead and he is not silent. And when his people gather, he proclaims his glory. The living God calls his people to organize then and behave themselves as he commands because it's important, because he is here. And it is this church, that the gathered people of God then, that Paul describes with two adjectives, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. If you look at verse 15, he uses both of those words, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. This is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word buttress is used. Now, a buttress is a retainer that supports a structure much the same way that a pillar would do, though a buttress is an angled support and a pillar is straight. So really, Paul is just using two words to describe the same thing, supports for uh, an architecture. And when I was younger, I uh, went on a missions trip. I was 13, 12 or 13. I went on a missions trip to a foreign country, Romania, and uh, we were able to do some touring of old buildings. And these old buildings had beautiful architecture, wonderful, just magnificent. The acoustics were second to none. And they were full of just 
just this beauty. And I can remember walking in and immediately, immediately being drawn to look up, to look up at the ceiling. Now, there were pillars, right? And I even remember buttresses holding up the, 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 the roof, right, the structure. But it wasn't that I was captivated by the, their beauty. I was captivated by the beauty that was above me. Now, they were important, and they were pretty in their own right and ornate and detailed, but they didn't overpower the real beauty of the building. Friend, you and I, we aren't the real beauty. The real beauty is something greater than us. And when we gather as the local people of God in the context of the church and we do it appropriately and we live our lives exercising appropriate behavior, we hold up the truth, the beauty of God. So I think as a whole, this text is very applicable to us today. I think it is imperative that the church call elders and pastors and deacons leaders who are up to the task. It's imperative that they call those leaders as qualified individuals, individuals who model and and set an example for you and I, for the rest of the body, who, who are content and happy to prop up the truth of God, the beauty of God, and not themselves. And so the structure and the order of the church should matter to us as well. God knew what he was doing when he created the world. He also knew what he was doing when he created and designed and implemented the church, giving the the, the leadership of the church over to qualified individuals, individuals who are more concerned with the glory of God and with his church than they are with anything else. The, uh, the attractiveness of this truth must be more attractive to the, the leaders and the members of a church than anything else. This is what Paul is telling Timothy here. The truth of God, God's truth is under assault today. It has been for 2,000 years and nothing has changed. So we have a buffet of options to choose from in today's world. Options that promise to give Churches, good results, right? Options that say, hey, look, we can grow your church. Hey, we can get results. In fact, there's people that are paid as church growth experts to grow a church numerically, right? Have the best music. Turn the lights down really low. Create a vibe and ambiance. Have programs for every age and stage, Make church fun and relevant. But if the purpose of the church is to only get people in the door, I mean, that would be great, right? Oh, we have a great number of people gathered here. But this isn't what Paul says we, the, the, the leader, that Timothy, the pastor, should be concerned about. The purpose of the church isn't found in what they do, but who they are. In simply gathering and organizing themselves to hear from God's word and to disciple and lead, they display, the church displays the wisdom of God. It's that easy. It is God's truth then 
that creates the church, not the other way around. Let me say that again. It is God's truth that creates the church, not the other way around. Throughout the New Testament, the church is created when God's truth is proclaimed. Think about it. All the missionary uh, stories in, in Acts, when God's word is preached and proclaimed, the church begins. It sprouts up. It, it, God produces that life and that health. And as it's built, as people grow, as people come and are saved and discipled and begin to resemble and model their Savior, it hoists that truth up even further. It is God's truth then that builds the people of God and not the other way around. God's way of building his kingdom, of building his church, is done through using his word to accomplish his purposes. And pastors and leaders and the church, members, should be about that and be given to it and commit to it. So that means that there's a heavy burden. There's a heavy burden that, that lies directly on the leaders of the church, but also then on the members. Are, are, are the leaders of the church primarily concerned for God's truth? I'm thankful that in this church they are. And do we truly believe that this is how God builds his church, that we don't need to implement secret strategies or marketing to produce results? Do we fully trust that God is doing exactly what he promises to do because we are working towards faithfulness? Even in the midst of this current season with so much uncertainty, are we confident that God's word, God's truth will build this church? Our, our, our natural tendency, our desire is to, is to look for other options. Look to see, like, well, are there any other gauges that we can use? Or to even become stricken with fear over, is this really truly enough? Paul's call on Timothy as a pastor and elder was to focus then on this order of the church, and the priority is the truth of God. It is God then who builds his church. As, as deacons, this should motivate our service or your service. When you serve the church, then you are demonstrating the rich truths of God, demonstrating that they have impacted your life because you're willing to do the simple, menial tasks so that God's word can be proclaimed. If you, are just, if you are a member here, give yourself then to this church in a greater way. right? Give yourself to this church in a greater way. God is about building up his church, and so give yourself to that. Make a fresh commitment then to pursue involvement, to pursue new or deeper relationships and ministry here. Participate in building up and discipling and, and caring for the members of this church and proclaiming the rich beauty of God's word. It's easy to go through life and to be uh, kind of pulled away from having your focus here. Uh, I know in my own life as, as a parent, you know, I want my kids involved in every activity. I, have, I would love to be involved in 
PTA and all of these other outside, uh, extra, extra, outside of church activities. And there's a place for those. There is. We ought to be doing that. Because many of them are good options and good causes. But don't let them cause you to lose sight of the beauty of what is happening here. Be involved with them. Use them evangelistically. But use them in a way that you can go and tell people, hey, God's doing something at my church in mission, at mission. You should come and hear. You should come and see. Use them as a tool. Find, if, if maybe you're here this morning and you're a visitor. You're here just kind of like, okay, it's my first Sunday. We've been here a while. We're thinking about plugging in. My encouragement to you is to do that, to plug in. Plug into a gospel-preaching church that will care for you and proclaim God's truth in your life. It doesn't have to be this one. There are others. We prayed for some this morning, earlier. But plug into a church that will care for you, that will press you deeper in your relationship with God, that will care for your family. Be a part of the pillar of the truth that God is building up in this world. So here we have talked and seen and, and, and really thought about this truth that God is, or Paul is telling Timothy to be about, but we haven't really defined it. I think that's right where Paul goes next in verse 16. Right foundation. So let's look again now at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul's logic that he's communicating to Timothy is clear. Timothy, my son, go establish these churches, an order that reflects the order of God, and you can see that order from creation. It proclaims then the truth of God as you do that. This is a mystery, Timothy. It really is. How all of this works together and how all of it, is, it works together but is ultimately found in just this simple truth of Jesus Christ. See, Paul right away in verse 16 admits that godliness is a mystery. Godliness is a mystery. And then breaks into this song, this confessional song of who Jesus is. And we don't really know much about this song. Uh, sometimes in the New Testament we'll see uh, songs and poems and then they're outside uh, of the New Testament, like in uh, people who dig up buildings, right? Uh, not architecture, that's the only thing that's on my mind. But yeah, archaeologist, the other arc. They'll find glimpses of like, oh, this, this song that we see in the New Testament was sung here or written down here. We don't have any of that information with this song. But the text is clear that Jesus is the truth that the church holds up. As the church is built and orders itself following God's standards, Jesus Christ, the truth of God, the word made flesh, is glorified. How this all works together, Paul says, there's a bit of a mystery to it. This isn't the first time that Paul has used the idea or the word mystery to depict what is taking place with the church, 
or with God or Christ. In fact, there are other places in the New Testament that Paul describes that what God has done in Christ, it's a mystery. It is a mystery. We cannot fully understand or fully comprehend it. And here in 1 Timothy, this mystery pertains specifically to godliness. Now, godliness literally means a holy life. That's it, a holy life, becoming more and more like God. So remember once again that we are reading in the context of elders and deacons and their qualifications, qualified individuals who are leading the church. And Paul then says, look, all of this godliness, it's a mystery. It's a mystery because we bring our sin We bring our brokenness, and we submit to God, we pursue Christ, and guess what? Godliness takes place. By the work of God, we become more godly. As we pursue him and and he is in us, we become more godly. God is at work in you and I. Now, a few uh, ways that we talk about this theologically. Godliness isn't synergistic. Godliness is monergistic. monergistic. Okay, synergism is you and God working together to produce godliness, right? Monergism, monergistic, is God working in you all by himself to produce godliness. Godliness is not based on you or I, or how hard we work, or how much we devote ourselves, or how much we uh, you know, flee to the mountains and, and meditate on God's word. It is not as if one day we decided to put ourselves into God's good graces, and we uh, then produce godliness. As if you and I are more enlightened, more aware, or have more willpower No, godliness is a work of God that is a result of faith. Faith that is put solely in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says this godliness, this is a mystery. We see this, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. I don't have a slide. If you can turn there quick, feel free. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so there's that idea, work it out with fear and trembling. Who does the work? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So godliness is a mystery because God produces the results. He causes us, in this Philippians text, to work out our salvation. The work isn't our own. We don't just naturally wake up one day and think, ah, I'm going to do this. It's God who gives us that desire. So Jesus Christ is not just the basis of our salvation. He's also the propellant. Christian, do you desire to be like Christ? When we read the qualifications of an elder or a deacon, do you desire that? Do you want that? We should. We ought. 
I, I know for myself when I'm, I'm challenged by them. I, I don't see myself in them all the time. But godliness is gained through a continuing, persevering faith in Jesus Christ. As he grows greater in your life, sin becomes less and less attractive. And this is going to become more and more uh, pronounced even in our own book. I won't preach coming sermons, but in chapter 4 we will see that Paul will continue this theme for Timothy. The basis is Jesus. Now, Let's be godly together. So what the work of this young minister is to be about is holding up the truth of God that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and let that produce godliness in people. So present the truth of the gospel. Call for people to turn from sin and let God do this mysterious, wondrous work. Preach Christ crucified. Now, this can become frustrating, right? Once again, we want results. We want to see something more take place, right? If I just press in certain ways and in certain areas, they'll, they'll, they'll become more like God, more Christ-like, or I will, even. It's for some of us, though, it seems like a no-brainer. We know Jesus saves and really makes us holy, but... I should be doing something, right? What about all of those verses that are commands, like put off, right? Put off all that sin, to, to do something. I mean, we even saw it here in that text in Philippians. And Christian, it is true. We cannot loaf our way through the Christian life and expect to grow in godliness. But let me be clear that any positive step towards holiness any growth in the disciplines of grace, any deliverance from habitual sin that we're experiencing, it always begins and starts with God. And he brings it about. It's really a cart before the horse analogy. God is pulling us along, right? He's the horse, we're the cart. He's bringing us towards holiness. Our fight against sin is externally a picture of the work that is taking place on our insides, of what he is doing. My desire to get up and read scripture or go to bed reading scripture, that's not a natural desire. That's God pulling me along. Remember the honeybees, right, at the beginning? What we see on the outside of the the, uh, uh, honey hive, a hive of bees, is really just a picture of what is taking place on the inside. There, you know, you have bees, a healthy hive will have bees coming and going, collecting pollen, taking care of the queen. It's much the same way with us. What we see on the outside of you and I is really just a picture of what, is God, of what God is doing in our hearts. And this, this is the mystery that Paul is talking about. That through Jesus Christ, we have been given a new heart. We have been given new desires. We have been given new affections. And through faith, he illuminates himself and reveals himself to us. So as we grow in grace, as we grow in knowledge, as we, we then grow into his likeness. Do you want to be like Christ? 
pursue him. That means turning from your sin and pursuing him. Paul's song then in verse 16 contains a wealth of theology. It's really a chronological movement through the life of Christ. It begins with uh, Jesus' deity. He's both fully God and fully man, 100% both, right? Mystery in and of itself right there. How does that happen? In his birth here on earth, he, he took on flesh. He humbled himself. God became man. In the second verse, we see the spirit of God that was present in his life, death, and ultimately resurrection. Third, the angelic world testified to him and attended to him. Fourth, that his life has been proclaimed among the world. Right, Each of these are the stanzas that we see in verse 16. Fifth, people responded to it. Paul says people responded to this. And lastly, that he ascended to heaven. This is the summation of the gospel. This is the good news. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh, lived full of a life as fully God and fully man. And died in our place. Died a death that you and I deserve. That, that was meant for us because of our sin. Was raised from the dead, proclaiming victory and proclaimed by people, talked about, people talked about him, and now sits enthroned in heaven where he rules over his church. And so this is not just the basis of godliness, but it is what causes our lives to bear the fruit of godliness. And it's a mystery. That, that somehow just believing that, committing your life to it, turning from sin, God does this work in your life to make him more like you. So if you are here today and you do not see yourself as a Christian, if this is your first time in church, maybe it's your 50th time, maybe it's your thousandth time, right? You just come to church. But if you don't see yourself as a Christian, this is what we believe brings about spiritual life, God's work. To be a Christian means that you desire to turn from your sin, that you desire to turn from all of those things that you've done and who you are that has offended God and to turn to Jesus Christ, who we just read about. So if this is you, if you believe this, if you believe what we just read in verse 16, I would encourage you to tell someone. To tell someone, because belief isn't silent. Belief talks about it. It's public. At least belief in this. It, it then lives a life that proclaims this godliness. It continually turns from sin and pursues holiness, pursues godliness. It is this faith then that produces righteousness. A, a righteous life is a life that is lived in full dependence on the work of Jesus Christ. A righteous life is a life that is lived in full dependence on the work of Jesus Christ. And this is where our text comes full circle. As the truth of Jesus is proclaimed, the church is built up. As, as, as salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, 
is spoken of, is, is taught, is learned, is internalized, the truth of the church is held up higher and higher. And it is the order of the gospel, the good order that creates this church and that the church then displays. So you can know, you can not just know God, but God can live in you. So as, as a church, as, as mission fellowship, my hope, my prayer for each of us is that we would do that, that we would internalize this truth, that we would live in light of this reality, that God would be in us and among us and that he would change us.